full disclosure, I am Robin Farzad. You think, Cat Stevens? You think? Put 1970 aside for a moment and ponder today's wild world. California is being sucked dry by almonds and cows. Another Bush and Clinton covet the White House. Vinyl sales in the UK are at a 19-year high. Tech is so hot again that a two-legged horse from Silicon Valley could well IPO at $12 billion. What else? Saudi Arabia and Israel can't stand Iran. Chipotle customers can stand guacamole inflation. Venezuelans can't find toilet paper. The band Yes will be touring with Toto. Okay, Cat Stevens had no idea. What better time to have on my favorite bylines in the biz? First, Bloomberg View columnist Justin Fox. Before joining Bloomberg recently, Justin was the editorial director of Harvard Business Review. You've no doubt read his byline in Fortune and Time. He authored the bestseller, The Myth of the Rational Market. And I dare you to find me another human being who went from being farm editor at the Advanced Register of Tulare, California, to official press pass holder at Davos. Justin joins us from Bloomberg's global headquarters in Manhattan. Top of the podcast to you, sir. Top of the podcast to you, Robin. And it's pronounced Tulare. Tulare. Gosh. Yeah. What is that, near Temecula or something? Uh, no, it's it's America's leading farm county, Robin. Get get it right. Oh, wait, it's wait, wait. Um, midway between county. Fresno and Bakersfield. Oh, I missed that. I'm sorry about that. Uh, but I, I'm, let me take you down the coast a little bit to outside of LAX, specifically the In-N-Out Burger on Sepulveda. Whenever I fly to Terangelis to meet my relatives, I lie and say that my plane is getting in maybe an hour or an hour and a half later. And I get in line at that In-N-Out Burger and I down a double-double animal protein style, whatever, with a chocolate milkshake. And I really feel guilty about that now that I read your column on cows sucking up more water in drought-stricken California than almonds. Um, I mean, I go to, I, I don't know if it's the same in and out but I always go to the in and out that's closest to LAX every time I fly in there, too. That is it. That's Sepulveda. Okay, then I'm not, and speaking of California names that are often mispronounced, Sepulveda, um, you're pronouncing it right, of course, but... Uh, I don't know that you, I mean, basically, if you're eating anything, you should be consumed with guilt, I guess. I, I don't think occasional In-N-Out burger trips are bad things, especially, I mean, I think at In-N-Out, you can also get one that's just all lettuce if you want. You can get well, anything yeah, you yeah, want. Let, interestingly enough, in the, in the chart that you did put out in your great Bloomberg View byline this week, uh, cows suck up more water than almonds. Lettuce is, in fact, not as water-intensive as the likes of alfalfa, which uh, goes into hay, and almonds and pistachios. What's gone wrong with uh, the market system, after all? Isn't there? I mean, you know, we're not talking Chinatown and Jack uh, Jack Nicholson getting his nose sliced, or uh, you know, the Milagro Beanfield War, and yet something is really screwy when uh, a state that is one of the largest economies in the world is really parched. Well. Um, one thing about the lettuce, I got an email from a farmer yesterday saying, well, if there were as many acres planted, I think he used celery, as, as many acres planted in celery as there are in almonds or in alfalfa, that it would be on top of the list. It's actually, you know, it's not that wildly different from crop to crop. It's just how much acreage there is. And even though California is probably 
best known for producing things like lettuce and broccoli and tomatoes and strawberries and the like, it doesn't actually take all that many acres to feed the country. Um, and that whole industry could survive on a pretty small fraction of California's water, although it has less to do with the inherent thirstiness of the crops, although strawberries are surprisingly non-thirsty, which is why is Why is water so mispriced in California, though? I want to something... You visit a country like Israel, and they covet water so much. They're very big on desalination and drip irrigation, and it seems like it's, it's, it's given out by the, you know, metric ton in California to almond growers and avocado growers. I mean, it, it varies wildly in California. That's the real story. It's like there are a lot of farmers in California who are paying huge amounts for water right now or just can't get any other than what they can pump from under their farms, which is turning into a problem. And um, and yet there are others who are getting it almost free. It's it's kind of this, and I don't fully understand it. I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to go out there and spend some more time learning about this, although actually... At the Tulare Advanced Register, which was my first real job, I, I I was just there for a year, but I somehow squeezed in a 12-part series on water in the valley. Not that I remember any of that now. Um, the issue is that it, it's, first of all, people, you know, some people have water rights that basically go back to the early 1800s and, you know, rights to take water straight out of the Sacramento River or the San Joaquin River. And then in the late 1800s, early 1900s, um, dams started getting built by the federal government and, and California. And the real boom was in the starting in the 1930s. And, and so there was this new set of rights and um, prices layered on top of that. And then it all sort of climaxed in the 60s with the giant things like the California Aqueduct, which takes mm. water all the way down the um, west side of the Central Valley and then pumps it up over the Tehachapi Range into L.A. That's not and where Dirk Diggler filmed his documentary, is it? No, that doesn't cut through the San Fernando Valley. N no, I mean, and, you know, the, there were earlier things like the, the stuff from Chinatown. But, and, and that, the creation of that whole, the, the canal along the... Um, west side of the valley opened up all of these new farm areas that were never there before. And now the, the issue with the almonds is almonds, they've been growing them in California since the Spanish you know, missionaries brought them um, in the 1600s. But uh, they really have taken off over the last 20 years. And the reason why is actually because water has been getting more expensive. Mm -hmm. And almonds, while they use a lot of water, you, you they, it's a good cash crop. You make serious money on almonds. And the and the Almond Board of California and others have done a great job of sort of pushing new uses of almonds, like almond milk. And so uh, almond revenues in California have gone from something like a billion dollars a year 20 years ago to seven billion now. And um, that's why it suddenly jumped up to being this big water user. It's because it's the growth crop mm. in California, and it and it's attracted um, you know hedge fund money, all sorts of investment, and almond farmers. A lot of them aren't necessarily in the best places in terms of water rights, but they're they're just they're the richest farmers around, and so they can build deeper wells than some neighbor who's growing alfalfa or cotton. Now, Justin, on the subject of liquidity, though, how's this for easy transition? Uh, you guys had a story out today that said global equity market total values surpasses $70 trillion for the first time. And it pivots on uh, the comments that um, hedgy legend Stanley Druckenmiller made last week ago, worrying that the uh, liquidity situation with the Federal Reserve keeping rates at emergency levels now for this long 
really resembles uh, what he felt in his bones in 2003, 2004, and that we are, um, you know, another trip up away from having another crisis on our hands. Yeah, I mean, it seems like a valid concern. I, I, the question is always sort of, well, when? Um, and 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 you look around, and it's not you know, real estate. It's kind of funny. It seems like real estate, not not necessarily in the U.S., but in lots of other places, might be the the trouble spot yet again. Um, you know, markets go up, markets go down. It's sort of this question of how kind of leveraged your economy is to those to those asset prices. The question is that when you pull this away and you you think about Fed Chair Janet Yellen and all the different central bank um, heads across the globe, I mean, how much of this, the big question is, how much of this is sustainable by organic underlying economic strength and how much of it is just smoking people out of the safety of cash and bonds into anything with yield? Um. <laughs> These are very big questions. These are Robin, meaning of for, life questions for, for which I don't have, you know, decisive answers. Well, you for talk you. about the myth of the rational market. I mean, here, how does a well, person, how does a person then loan money to Uncle Sam? If, you know, there are people out there like Jeremy Grantham, which say with a high degree of certainty that we're going into another collapse. The Fed's going to have to keep rates low. Uh, this this puts all sorts of distortions into, uh, you know, pricing government credits across the world. What what does the what does the U.S. Treasury yield mean anymore? Um, if you know the Fed is not really manipulating it, well, and I think even beyond Fed manipulation, the whole thing with financial markets is they're really good at relative pricing of relatively similar things. They're not. I don't think there's any sense that over time they've been super mm. great at forecasting kind of regime shifts mm. in the global economy. And and people, so people do things like just. You know that that anyone would own a treasury now. Everyone knows that at some point interest rates are going to be higher and there's going to be carnage in the bond market. But um, anybody who's actually made decisions on the basis of that concern has be, has been burned for the last. Well, do you have institutional memory, Justin? I mean, where were you in '82? Where were you in '94? You know, when rates shot up. I mean, you're you're a young guy. Um, in 94, I was in Alabama and 82, I was in Lafayette, <laughs> California. I was not, I was actually in 94. I, I had started investing. I had this brilliant idea. I finally had some leftover money cause I got a big pay raise at the Birmingham news in Alabama. Can you imagine a pay raise at the Birmingham news? It was huge pay raise too. <laughs> and, um, I, I, I had just read Random Walk Down Wall Street and I, I was all set to just buy an S and P 500, Fund and this was probably about ninety two, ninety three. But I thought, you know, the S and P, the U S has probably already had its thing. I'm going to buy emerging markets funds. <laughs> oh, look at you! And you know, they got hammered for the next five or six years. Well, talk to me. I know these are whiplashing turns, but you, you, what's great about what you guys do at Bloomberg View is you can cast this wide net. You have to uh, uh, turn uh, very quickly at whiplashing speeds when there's a breaking news headline and opine on it and analyze in a way that I think in past lives we would have had a couple of weeks to do it at weekly or biweekly magazines. You're also writing about uh, Jeff Immelt and GE's latest incarnation and being broken up. 
I'm always curious as to why the market's given him so much patience. I mean, yes, he took over the CEO of, of General Electric, this big, unwieldy conglomerate, right before 9-11. But he almost has this lasting power that uh, no one, no activist, uh, no big institutions kind of calling for his head, for the GE Capital debacle, for underperformance. I think as of two years ago, his total return was 0%. Yeah, um, it and it's still around there because it hasn't done a whole lot in the last two years. What is it I, about I, him, though? Put, bring bring out your Harvard Business uh, Review experience, right? What well, is it about I, I him that it, he's inoculated from this? I think it's two things. One is that they're just clearly. I, I mean, it is a puzzle about why no activist has gone after them. I think. The only explanation I have is no activist is, knows exactly what to do with the place. Um, and, and in terms of Immelt in, in, in particular, I, I totally think everybody was prepared to give him a couple years of slack after taking over for Jack because there was this feeling that Jack had sort of stirred things up into this, you know, consistent earnings growth frenzy that just wasn't sustainable. But also so, they cookie-jarred earnings so perfectly at GE Capital. I mean, I think Jack Bogle said out there that there's no chance, there's no probability in the world that they could have beat by this amount every year. And we saw the comeuppance for that in 2008, 2009. They had to belatedly sell NBC Universal. Maybe they got less for it than if they could have been more hale and hearty to hold on to this company longer. Um, again, I don't under, you know, now he's coming out and saying, all right, the urgency, I want to return $90 billion to shareholders. You're telling me now? Right. And this would have been a really brilliant idea to do in about 2006. <laughs> right. um, but that's, I guess, too much to ask. Uh, I, I think it's partly that uh, it, GE was actually starting to do pretty well um, stock performance-wise going into the financial crisis. And then in the financial crisis, the attention was elsewhere. <laughs> it was definitely a, a company in trouble, but there were others in more trouble. And and then since the crisis, you know, stock has recovered pretty dramatically. I, I do think we're reaching the point where you can definitely tell from the analysts who cover GE that everybody's sort of starting to has been starting to shake the tree a little bit. There was this funny exchange between Scott Davis at Barclays, who had written a note a month or so ago, sort of speculating on the basis of no real information, right, right. but just sort of that you know maybe maybe Emil was going to be out of there sooner rather than later. And so in the Q and A that um, GE did with analysts. After announcing this big sell-off of GE Capital, Davis Davis tells him, "Well, I, I guess you can keep your job for a while longer now." And I have to says, tell you that it, it is interesting. It reminds me of a story I did a couple of years ago on on this specifically his zero percent total return. And there were a couple of analysts in their notes that that looked askance at his tenure and wondered if activists were going to agitate. And I've never in my life encountered a, an experience where analysts called me back just terrified. Listen, just make sure you you quote me verbatim. And I'm not on the record as saying that he needs to lose his job. I was like, listen, man, I'm just quoting the note. My point is, is I've never seen people so terrified of just shedding light on a CEO out there. Because my theory, my hypothesis is that they knew that there was going to be a lot of investment banking business down the pike. Um, and, and you just don't want to you don't want to be an analyst out there that, that ends up ticking the other side of the wall, even though we got rid of those apparent conflicts in 2002. Never have I seen a company whose analysts are so terrified about just speaking well, I, publicly about it. I think there's another reason for that is just that GE is traditionally incomprehensible. And so if you're an analyst, you sort of need a good relationship with management to have any Yeah, idea but Enron, you guys on. knew at Fortune that Enron was incomprehensible unless you take it on faith. I'm not saying GE's Enron, but 
you know, we thought right, we but learned, I, I just think that our... that for a long time has been part of the relations. GE being a GE analyst is sort of different from it, lots of other companies, and maybe that's going to change now because GE is going to be a much simpler company that can be compared with specific rivals in a way that couldn't be before. But the the issue was it was sort of its own thing. As an analyst, you couldn't really understand its prospects by going completely outside management. And it would just take so much in, in the way of resources. And maybe this explains the, why why uh, activists haven't pulled in either. Basically, to, to build your own sort of um, idea of where, where GE is and where it ought to go is so time-consuming and so difficult that, for the most part, people are just kind of reliant on management being halfway straight with them. And I, I will say GE management, until it became, well, even after it became controversial to be so, we're pretty straight about, yes, we do use GE Capital as a cookie jar. Um, they, you know, they, they're sort of like, this is how we manage our company internally. We set tar- difficult targets and we have all these gung-ho people who try to meet them. It would be weird for us not to act that way externally, too. Hmm. We're talking to Justin Fox, columnist extraordinaire at Bloomberg View. Um, we are taking it all across the globe. I know this is a bit whiplashing, but bear with us. Hopefully it'll it'll bear fruit for you afterwards. Um, talk to me, Justin, I know this is a wild card, about China and emerging markets writ large right now. There seems to be um, a lot of angst over uh, you know how the world would deal with a harder landing in China, maybe in the modern post-WTO uh, era for China. We've never experienced uh, kind of the systemic effects of a true Chinese crash. Would they pull back on treasury buying? Would it help with commodity prices collapsing? I mean, what are you what are you hearing in the field? Well, I mean, it is with China, you go there and you get outside of Beijing and Shanghai, especially and not not in the south of the country, but sort of in the center and the north. And it looks like this big bubble about to collapse. I was on a trip last summer and we were in Wuhan, which is this giant city in the center of China where where Mao swam across the Yangtze, um, or I, who knows if he actually swam all the way across. But anyway, it, that place is just full of see-through buildings. Mm. And, 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 you know, there'd been this conscious decision that Shanghai has grown, Beijing has grown, now Wuhan, the great central middle China city, needs to boom. And it, it's just not happening. People aren't filling all these giant apartment buildings and office buildings that they're building. And so to any Western observer who goes through there, it's kind of hard not to think, wow, um, this you know feels like some episode from the United States in the late 1800s, and they're about to have a massive financial crisis. Um, obviously, it hasn't worked that way so far. The Chinese government is aware of these risks to some extent. And so it's just made it so that the people who predict a you know coming crash keep getting to be made to look pretty dumb. But I still I, I I've got to think there's going to be an even sharper turn down in growth than the Chinese government. We kind of got a taste of it though in raw materials. I mean, yeah. I, you know, there was a great Grant's interest rate observer note from I think three or four years ago on. Listen, it's not so bad. We did have the Asian economic crisis, and if you remember. Uh, the United States, comparatively, was hail uh, in 2008 and 2009. It pushed down commodity prices. You do see instability, but we haven't seen kind of in the modern uh, emerging markets boom era how, if for at all, the likes of Brazil 
or Colombia or Vietnam would decouple from China? Can these economies stand on their own? And moreover, what would happen to the United States' cost of capital? I mean, how dependent on China are we on their kind of treasury buying binge? Right. And and I mean, I think the answer to all that is nobody has any idea. Um, but obviously, yeah, it, it, it's already having a good impact on commodity prices, having having China slow slowing things down a bit. Um, but it's scary what would happen otherwise. But, it, you know, it's this country that's been growing in this um, historically unprecedented fashion. And there have to be difficulties along the way. Talk to me about Steve Jobs, Justin Fox. You're friends with the authors of the two uh, definitive books on Steve Jobs. Obviously, the the bestseller that Walter Isaacson, formerly of Time Magazine, put out, I believe it was in 2012, which was commissioned by Steve Jobs himself. And now with uh, Becoming Steve Jobs, uh, which was uh, kind of a more of a, a, a favorable view that was uh, really uh, uh, extolled by Apple management currently, you know, Johnny Ive and Tim Cook. Uh, I don't understand this. I mean, Steve Jobs handpicked when he was sick and he knew that the end was near. He handpicked Walter Isaacson, you know, biographer of Benjamin Franklin. Uh, he, he he didn't close any avenues to him. He let him write the book that Walter Isaacson wanted to write. So why this need for revisionism right now? Well, basically, Steve Jobs is less of a Steve Jobs apologist than Tim Cook. Um, I can imagine. I mean, first of all, the the thing about Walter's book, you know, there's lots of positive about Jobs in there, but it, you know, Walter wrote that thing pretty quickly, and he had access to everybody you could want to have access to. And I, I read it finally. I was kind of embarrassed to admit this. I finally read it um, a couple weeks ago. I uh, hadn't read it before, and you know, the, what you get is you've been talking about whiplash. There, there definitely within each chapter, there's sort of good Steve and bad Steve shows up every time. And it's almost more about the the structure of the books than that they paint any radically different picture. Whereas the Brent Schlender, Rick Tetzeli book, um, you know, tries to, tells a lot of the same stories and tells fewer stories. It's definitely not as complete a biography as Isaacson's and it doesn't really try to be, but tries to sort of show it in the form of a personal growth story, which you get less a sense of in, in Isaacson's. Um, I mean, I think in the end, it's, you know, it's been great for sales of this new book and it's a good book and people should read it. Uh, But it's not like you read the two and you get this wildly different picture of the guy. Um, and, And there's definitely a little bit of sort of protesting too much in the in the Schlender Tetzeli book about, you know, what a what a swell guy he is when they're giving all these examples of him being extremely <laughs> difficult to to work with. I can imagine him, uh, you know, uh, reading this book in the great hereafter on his uh, iPhone six plus <laughs> on script. Yeah, or... <laughs> and I think the thing I mean, my sense is that this would amuse him. I'll say this on the ADD Express, as we are right now, Justin, um, <laughs> you wrote a story about uh, sin assets and returns. And by the way, it's it's you guys fault with this amazing Bloomberg redesign and Bloomberg view. They have this whole arcade of your stories. It's kind of like, a, you know, whack-a-mole or Jeopardy, anything. I just go from tile to tile. And I noticed a, a column that you put out uh, uh, in February, need a hot stock, buy booze and smokes. And both both of us noticed that enormous Credit Suisse a uh, uh, research compendium that came out, the best investments of all since 1900. In the U.S., it's tobacco companies. A single dollar invested in them at the turn of the century in 1900 would be worth $6.3 million today. I mean, how yeah. does that happen? 
Well, uh, part of it is just that a lot of the you know, big, new, giant industries of now didn't exist 100 years ago. And so you're looking at industries that existed 100 years ago and that you could buy stock in in public markets um, that are still around today. Yeah, and but that, you could benchmark that against the Dow 15 or the Dow 10 or whatever the heck it was back then. And it's not even close. You know, a dollar to $6.3 million? Has that ever been done in history? Um, it's a lot. I'm try I'm sure it has but yeah that no it is it, it was pretty remarkable to look at and I I'm I'm a little suspicious of putting too much weight on it because I think as as the authors of that report say there's a lot of there's survivor bias there's this that and the other thing um and but it's still uh, Yeah but even if it's half that you yeah. know what I my, what I don't understand right now and this is a bit of a, a curveball for you but is this industry on the precipice of and, and you know Altria Philip Morris that, that Altria is I think near an all-time high aren't they on the brink of digital disruption you see people who swear by their e-cigs or their you know vaping bags uh, and it's not something that that the giants are necessarily going to capture that they're still overwhelmingly dependent on the traditional uh, cigarette with tar right. and filters branded and cigarettes yeah. yeah I mean can't they get disrupted just like we were in publishing yeah, sure. I mean, I, my colleague, Lanid Bershitsky, his theory was that they're, they're just going to all move into the marijuana business and do just fine. <laughs> <laughs> or go hoard water in California. Well, we there's have, that, too. Well, we have about three minutes. Uh, tell me what else I should be reading, what else I should be thinking of. What's front and center for you? Well, I'm I'm just fascinated this week by sort of the return of the rebirth of Nokia, which, you know, is has this big possible merger deal in the works with Alcatel Lucent. And this isn't this is sort of this rump operation of Nokia, their their network equipment business, which was not a, not one of the really successful ones. And they spun it off in 2006 into a joint venture with Siemens. Um, but then, you know, soon after that, their actual phone business collapsed. And now it this they, they ended up buying Siemens out recently. And now this is all that there is left of the once great Nokia. It's run by an Indian guy, not a Finn. And it's doing really well. It also recently acquired um, Motorola's old uh, networking equipment Could business. you, could the year 2000 you imagine that Motorola networking, Alcatel, Lucent, and Nokia networking all kind of wrapped into one with Nortel gone? And, and Siemens. Don't forget Siemens. And Siemens. Um, yeah, and, and, and a lot of Nortel's business ended up as part of um, Alcatel-Lucent. Um, I don't know what I could have. I mean, it was a weird world in 2000. Uh, but it is pretty remarkable, the the, the, the moving around since then. And it, and it is funny to think about the sort of family histories of these companies. I mean, Lucent was the old Western Electric sure. part of AT&T. Nokia was a, you know, manufacturer, timber company, maker of rubber boots that sort of got into mobile phones in the 90s as Scandinavia kind of pioneered some of the first mobile phone networks. Um and, you know, I guess the Nokia name will live on. Um, there's not so much in the phones. <laughs> that that mashup with Microsoft, I don't think there's any evidence yet that it's that it's really making any headway. I mean, what makes you wonder what kind of empire wreckage you and I will be contemplating 15 years hence? I mean, yeah. the unthinkable. Like, could you imagine Facebook now doesn't exist? <laughs> Justin Fox, Bloomberg View, one of my favorite bylines in the business. Thank you so much for checking us out. Your Twitter handle is FoxJust. Yes, it is. Uh, this is a must follow, everyone. Full disclosure, we'll be right back. 
Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Today we have some of my favorite bylines in the business. Joining us from Bloomberg's global headquarters in New York City in the middle of a buzzing newsroom, which I'm sure you can hear behind her mic, is Paula Dwyer, who writes editorials on economics, finance, and politics for Bloomberg View. Paula and I cross paths together both at uh, Business Week and the New York Times, where I was a uh, reporting fellow during business school 10 years ago. Paula, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for asking me, Robin. Glad to be here. Oh, this is great. All right, Paula, talk to me about the big political news of the week. You were uh, a Washington person for a long time. Everybody is talking about Hillary. I just have a big kind of 10-ton elephant question in the room. What is the break in case of emergency scenario for Democrats if, you know, God forbid Hillary would get sick or some huge scandal or some other uh, unforeseen catastrophe were to derail her? Oh, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think Joe Biden would just jump in there um, uh, with both feet. And the reason that he's not doing that now, I think, is, well, A, he's 67 years old and he just doesn't quite have the fire in the belly anymore. Um, but he really feels like he deserves to um, go around the track one more time and be given a chance. He's But he's not polling well. Hillary is outraising him. Um, and, uh, you know, the Democratic um, Party is is ready for Hillary, which, you know, is one of her, her slogans. Um, and so, I, you know, I think he would be seen as uh, a safe pair of hands, um, you know, and somebody who could slip right in there if, if something, you know, God forbid, did happen to her. But I think she's very healthy. I don't think that's going to happen. She's, you know, not that old. Um, she's rested. She hasn't run a race since 2008. Um, she put on a lot of miles as Secretary of State, but that was... Um, but again, uh, even in, even in now. investing in management school, there's a lot of single person risk here. It's like the Jeffrey Gunlack factor, right? <laughs> well, well, I don't know. I mean, uh, I mean, you, you you could say that really almost about um, any presidential election. Um, you know, there there is there's always been uh, a a bench behind the front runner. Sometimes the front runner doesn't emerge until. Uh, halfway through the primaries because it's a crowded field, like we, we will see with the Republican primaries. And it, saying it's a crowded field is an understatement. But there's, you know, there's always someone who the party coalesces around at some point and becomes the front runner, and then you know eventually the the general election candidate. And you could say that about that person every four years. You know mm-hmm. that that there is that risk of some sudden accident or um, scandal. Hmm. Paula, you've covered uh, the minimum wage issue quite a bit and uh, this idea of corporate welfare. It's gotten a lot of ink uh, this week and last week. And in terms of, um, I don't know, what do we call it? The leakage that the likes of Walmart and McDonald's um, and huge employers in the service sector and minimum wage dependent employers that they get to benefit from in that effectively their uh, employees disproportionately use Medicaid or uh, the food stamp program, SNAP. Correct. And then again, this might be an example of private profits and socialized risk. Uh, What's going on? Well, uh, it's a very good question, Robin. So um, you have employees at Walmart and at McDonald's who are paid so little, um, you know, they, they cannot really afford um, to own a car, they can't afford to get a better education so that they can move up the, 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 the income chain. Um, they, they rely on public uh, benefits, food stamps, Medicaid, subsidized housing, and um, I believe it was McDonald's that even put a video out to show its workers how to access those benefits. 
Um, and it is a form of corporate welfare or uh, subsidy. And um, but the reason that they were able to do that is that there was there was a, an abundance of people looking for that kind of entry-level work and who were willing to work at low wages because there were no other jobs. Now that the labor market is tightening, people who are on the lower rungs have have a bit more leverage. They may not realize it, but they do. Um, there's less um, choice out there for companies that hire minimum wage workers, so they have to uh, pay a little bit more to attract them, and then they have to give them a few more benefits to keep them. They have to train them a little bit more because they um, want want them to learn new skills. So this is all very good. Um, you know, the the reason that Target, the reason that that Walmart, the you know, the reason that some of these companies are raising wages is because they have to. This is not because they're being charities. It's because the market is demanding it, and this is a good thing for minimum wage workers. But now. again, that the disproportionate pass through. I mean, here here's the deal. If you are if you are a shareholder of Walmart or McDonald's or Yum Brands, you know, KFC, Taco Bell, you expect them to be aggressive arbitrageurs of uh, the US, you know, welfare system. You know, you, you this is the law, you're playing by the law, the letter and the spirit of the law. But why doesn't this strike more indignation with people who, I think the lightning rod of the welfare mom, you think, in 1996 is one thing. But then companies that uh, see their stock prices at a certain level, uh, it's not like they are out there uh, you know, plowing back a ton of their cash flow into uh, welfare programs in the United States. Like, you know, the way the tobacco industry was pursued by the state attorneys general to recoup health care costs. Why can't the U.S. government go and recoup Medicaid-type costs, um, uh, SNAP food stamp costs from companies that disproportionately rely on them for private profits. Well, I, I get what you're saying, but you could recoup the health care costs from tobacco companies because tobacco was causing cancer. You, you can't recoup the cost of food stamps and Medicaid because those are entitlement programs. And if you meet the, re the requirements, so you meet the income requirements or a residency requirement, you are entitled to that benefit. And so you, you can't really, as a government, say, um, because you, this company didn't pay its workers enough, we have to require well, why, them why to is then... It, why is it such a stretch what I... Why is it such a stretch, what I just kind of illustrated? I don't mean to give you grief about it, but you could say that you guys disproportionately benefit from people who are dependent on public assistance. Hence, we expect you to kick back more into the coffers. Well, because you cannot, in our country, you don't have uh, tax rate. You don't tax corporations um, individually. In other words, you, you have to have a tax policy that hits all companies the same way. I mean, you, ha you can have carve-outs and deductions and exemptions and all of that, but you can't have special tax policies for individual companies. So this company gets this much benefit uh, through indirectly through food stamps and Medicaid, so this company has to therefore um, pay 39% uh, tax income tax rate rather than 35%. We, we, I mean, we just generally don't do that. I think it would be unconstitutional um, because it's an unequal um, application of the law. But um, I get your point, and I, I can get my outrage factor up too. Um, but I also think that as as we see, the, the best thing that can happen to avoid all of this is to have economic growth. Mm. And um, the more the economy grows, the lower unemployment is, the less companies can take advantage of the, the people um, on the lower rungs of the labor market and the more benefits they have to provide. And, and that's a win-win. 
Paula, I'm going back into the vault, the Bloomberg View vault, November of 2012. You came out and said that the SEC needs uh, former Wall Street executive Sally Krawcheck, not a caretaker. Um, how how do you how do you say this? I mean, she was CFO of Citigroup when a lot of the bad things happened. Uh, does she seem to get a free pass through everything else that happened at Bank of America Merrill? Would she be a good steward at the SEC? Oh, you are going into the vault. Oh, yeah. Uh, I told you it was whiplashing left okay. and right, left and right. All right. Well, so fair fair game. Um, so Sally was at Citigroup, and she was one of the few people who recommended that Citi reimburse some of their um, investors who lost money in the financial crisis on um MBS, more correct. Securities correct. So she forth. was at odds with so Vikram Pandit on that. She was at odds with the entire banking industry on that. Um, she's at odds on uh, executive pay and how the bonus system on Wall Street drives people, especially traders, to do things that are for their benefit, but ultimately will crash the bank, which is what we saw happen. She was an outlier on um, getting more women into um, Wall Street, and especially on trading floors and into assets. Management. She's an outlier in many ways, and I think since she left Wall Street, she has um, been quite the crusader for the, um, you know, the 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 other view that um, a women are often overlooked and discriminated against on Wall Street, mm. which I believe is true, and b that the the way that that. The, the, the business model that Wall Street operates on and that it has gone right back to since the, the crisis, um, w- which is the, the bonus system, is skewed. Um, so, uh, and, it, and it creates negative incentives. In other words, n- incentives for um, people to to operate the, the banks in ways that personally reward them, but that are not good for society overall, and eventually not good for their own. I would banks. I would agree with you, and I would extol her for that. But I would also wonder why she hasn't come out and say, "Listen, I own being CFO of Citigroup when we made some terrible mistakes. In fact, you know, I caught up with it, and when it was time to be accountable, when the platform was burning in 2007, 2008, I pushed management much." You know, to to my own existential risk uh, as an executive there, to fess up about it. But she hasn't done it yet. I mean, to my mind, she's gone on this kind of soft thought leader track. And the people that I still speak to inside of City, which still has to ring fence toxic assets that were accumulated circa 2004, 2006, say that it's amazing that she collected all of this salary, and it's very easy for her to come out there now and and say that Wall Street needs to change. Yeah, you know, I I don't necessarily disagree with that. I think, but I mean, I I admire Sally and I like what she's doing um, on on women's issues and on um, just investment management ideas and so forth. Um, but you know, we we generally don't have um, in our society when people work on Wall Street, they get disillusioned. And they leave. They try something different. But that's what they know. They know finance. They they know the industry, and they don't want to burn all their bridges. Um, you know, maybe it's better to be a soft thought leader, and that's how you change people, rather than to be a Ralph Nader like um, crusader who a lot of people dismiss. So you don't want to be somebody who is easily dismissed. You want to be somebody who can still have some influence. Sure, I hear you. Talk to me about. Uh, the influence of the financial services industry and the fiduciary standard out there, which I think a lot of people assume that the broker that they're working with or the, the, the fund manager or the mutual fund company or the investment desk at their bank branch 
espouses a fiduciary uh, standard. Can you explain us the difference between that and marketing? You know, this is one of those things that you assume, like my water supply is going to be safe and it's fluoridated. I assume that the SEC and the NASD um, mandate that the financial services person has to have my fiduciary interest at heart. Right. So this is one of my personal crusades, Robin. You and Jack Bogle. Yeah, well, you know, Jack is uh, much better at it than I am. I'm I'm a latter-day uh, convert, but um, the brokerage industry has a model, and it works like this. Um, when when they have a customer, when a customer walks in the door, they have a duty to sell that customer, um, you know, basically something that is um, suitable for their investment needs. And suitable means a lot of things. I mean, you can... Mm-hmm cover up a multitude of sins by saying this investment is suitable for you. So in other words, um, you know, say you're 45 years old and you're raising a family, you want to save for college and you want to um, save for retirement, almost everything is suitable for you, right? I mean, you can always find an investment that will meet that those demographic and risk appetite criteria. Um, but suitable doesn't mean that I, the broker, have your uh, fiduciary interests. In other words, I can sell you something that rewards me um, more than you um, because it is so-called suitable. And I can sell you, say, a mutual fund that um, pays me some kind of fee-sharing arrangement that I'm not going to tell you about because I'm not re- required to tell you about. Or I'm going to sell you a, a mutual fund that has a, a 2% uh, management fee, which is huge. Um, rather than one that only has a 0.5% because the 2% one will give me um, a kickback and the 0.5% one doesn't pay those kind of Why kickbacks. isn't there an Upton Sinclair that has exposed this kind of, you know, sausage making? You know, I don't Same understand why. that. <laughs> You're going to write the book on this? Oh, boy, I would like to. But, you know, today, uh, funny that you should bring this up. Today, the U.S. Labor Department is going to propose regulations that require brokers who sell retirement um, uh, investments to follow a fiduciary standard in the same way that a registered investment advisor must follow a fiduciary standard. So for the first time, both types of advisors will have to follow this legal standard that says that whatever they sell you must be in your interests and, and their personal interests cannot enter into the picture. Paul, I is, think is this that, is a huge Is step that forward. dissonance just really a function of how powerful the financial lobby is, ultimately? Of course. Um, you know, the, the, the industry, the, the, the brokerage industry... You answered which, that like I'm asking you, where do babies come from? Right, something? exactly. Of course. It's, it's, um, but but, the, but the, the reason that they're powerful is not because they... Um, have you know the sharpest elbows and they do underhanded things it's because of their the message that they give congress and to the um, federal regulatory apparatus is well people prefer to work with brokers because we're we're we don't charge them well they do charge them it's just not obvious that they charge them they're backdoor payments um, you know they don't take anything out of the earnings on your investment they take it out um uh, you know, in in more subtle ways, uh, you know. So, in other words, they don't take a, a cut of what you your investments return to you, and so it's kind of illusory to the customers that the broker is so-called free, and then they also say that well, 
in, in return for our, you know, services, we give them advice. And if they don't come to us, they won't get advice anymore because they won't pay for the advice. And that is so dishonest of them because the the price of their advice is lower returns. Mm. And and that is, it's a huge price. And the, the White House has estimated that that costs a huge amount of money. It's like, you know, $80 billion or something like that, um, that... Um, uh, retirees have ha- have or future retirees have had to give up in in terms of uh, investment returns in order to get that advice. So they give bad advice. They take a lot of money for it, and and then they say, well, but um, what the White House is doing with these fiduciary rules is going to lead to people not having enough retirement savings. It is it is just completely bogus. Mm. Sorry. No, uh, no, I understand. <laughs> I, I feel your passion. <laughs> Be indignant. Um, I, I have a couple wild card uh, uh, ideas for you in the kind of 10 minutes we have left. By um, mid-November 2016, Paula Dwyer, we could well be looking at a world that has the following people as maybe four to the five most powerful people on the planet. Hillary Clinton, Angela Merkel, Janet Yellen, and Christine Lagarde. Um, I like that. We are really on the precipice of something that big. I mean, it's pretty mundane. If you look at, statistically speaking, I know the Vegas odds aren't worth anything. Hillary Clinton is presumptive, you know, front runner right now. What will that mean? I mean, you, 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 you write about women on Wall Street quite a bit, but the most powerful banker on the world right now is Janet Yellen. And she has the unenviable task of pulling away the punch bowl, you know, uh, uh, trillions of dollars of easing, 0% interest rates. You have Angela Merkel and her suasion keeping Europe together. You have Hillary Clinton announcing uh, president. And Christine Lagarde kind of on the periphery. And then you have this right winger in France who could well be elected. I mean, it's a rapidly changing world for women. Yeah. Well, uh, it's long overdue. A. Um, B, I, my fondest hope is that all of these people, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a big Marine Le Pen fan, but that when she had when a big women, falling out with her dad. Yeah, I know. Um, and, um, you know, over ideology, really. Papa, and, and, I banish you to Belgium. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I, my fondest hope is that, that these women can, can run as, just you know, as individuals, not as women. I don't think Hillary wants to be the first woman president. I think she wants to be a great president. I don't think um, Janet Yellen wants to go down in history as the first woman Fed chairman. She wants to go down in history as the, the Fed chairman who took away the punch bowl and um, managed the economy into a soft landing. Um, and you know, the same goes for Angela Merkel. I, I mean, I don't think they want to necessarily get into their offices just because they're women. I think, you know, they they agree that it's a long overdue that there is a woman in each of these offices, but they don't want that to be the only characteristic that people remember them for or look to them for their advice and counsel and and leadership for. Hmm. Paula. Robin. Talk to me, please, about the New York Times. Again, this is out of left field, but you guys, you and Justin Fogg, you're like Swiss Army knives of, of, of beat reporting and everything. I just throw yeah. all these things at you. <laughs> you're on the hot seat. Before I mix another metaphor, the New York Times out there has shed its interest in recent years, what, uh, regional television, radio stations, the Boston Globe, uh, whatever stake it had in about.com, uh, yes. its headquarters where you used to work. Uh, near Times Square, and then it's an at least buyback in its other headquarters. Long and short of it, it, it is the it is the last remaining big pure play 
in newspapers, which is a moribund business. It's publicly traded, but it's effectively privately owned because the Salzberger family has a super voting share uh, class of stock. The Wall Street Journal is now Rupert Murdoch's, and presumably, you know, uh, he'll cover the losses or his trust will when he's no longer with us. Jeff Bezos swooped in and rescued the Washington Post, which is covering itself in glory right now. Uh, my old magazine, Business Week, was rescued by Mike Bloomberg, and obviously you get the, the advantage of you and Justin get to write there in, 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 a, in a well-financed uh, environment where he's not immediately concerned about profits. Where does this leave the New York Times? Yeah, so uh, since this is full disclosure, I'll make a full disclosure. I own New York Times stock, so I just wanted to uh, let that get out there. Um, I, um, as you know, you know, I used to work there. As Wait, you time out though. And, You're, hold on, New York uh-huh. Times stock. You own that, and so do the family members who are out there, the cousins. The, yeah, but the, I don't have any voting rights. Voting <laughs> rights, but they can look at it and compare it to, geez, I could have owned Facebook. I could have owned an S&P index, a NASDAQ sure. thing, and just sure. hasn't done anything for me. So they could right. be amenable to the siren call of a, an unsolicited bid. Well, keep in mind that um, uh, Arthur Salzberger, the, the the chairman, has reinstituted dividends. So, uh, you know, perhaps he needed to keep the fourth generation of the Ox Salzberger family uh, in the money. Um, but a lot of the family, a lot of the um, uh, millennials in that family are working at the New York Times. So, um, you know, they're they're. They are not only the owners and the major shareholders with voting rights, but they also have a stake in the future of the Times. The family is very dedicated to that newspaper, and I don't think they would sell out the way that um, uh, Don Graham did at the Washington Post or the, you know, the way that the, the family did at the Wall Street Journal or even the um, Los Angeles Times. I just don't. I just but it think seems that like it's unilateral too... disarmament. If other people are able to poach some of your talent. Um, and it's happening now. People are increasingly looking at the Washington Post as a viable place to go. They're, you know, they're considering places like Bloomberg or all these other explainer uh, mm-hmm. websites that are VC-backed. It's a far different world for him. It Shouldn't is, he, and, for and the sake of his company? They're struggling with it. They have uh, layoffs almost every year. They just went through a brutal round of layoffs where an enormous amount of talent walked out the door. And it was mostly the people who had the experience and the institutional and that's the memory. perverse that's the perverse thing about it is that you have to this is a very lonely battle when they can just walk across the street or go to a Washington Post or form a, a, you know I know this is getting inside baseball inside Romanesco but they can form their own politico type you know secessionist movement why don't they sell and rescue the company and rescue their finances the family while they have a chance is it just pride noblesse oblige um, I just I think it's in their DNA. I think it, it is pride. I don't know if it's noblesse oblige. I think it's um, that they really do feel that they have a trust. And I know that is um, I don't mean that as a pun that, that they have been trusted with this national treasure and it is a national treasure. But, the, you know, the interesting thing is that the, the New York Times journalism is still fantastic. And, you know, Dean Bacay, the executive editor there is is not. Um, going to let up, and they are trying many different types of things. Um, yeah, but Dean can't throw a, he can't throw a bake a, sale. He can't raise money if they give him the drip, drip like Dean Bacay at the Los Angeles Times. It's why he left the Tribune because they kept asking him to surrender, you know, his second born and everything. Right. And after a while, you realize, gosh, we're in a we're in a world where 
all of these other companies are owned by wealthy people, and they don't care about the quarter-to-quarter and the dividend distribution. And the opportunity cost of that de minimis dividend going to the family members that could be used to kind of staff up in video, uh, multimedia, and the things that are really going to move the needle for the company. Yeah, you know, Robin, I can't disagree with you. Maybe Mike Bloomberg will step up to the plate and say, this is a national treasure and I need to save it. Um, he, you know, he always says, I'm not interested uh, in owning the New York Times. Why would I want to own that? I have Bloomberg LP. Um, but, um, you know, the, the New York Times is a different animal than what, what Bloomberg is. And um, my, you know, I, I think he should buy it, but he's not asking me for my advice. <laughs> and name you editor. That would be great. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's be your not caterer happen. and fact checker. The interesting <laughs> thing, though, again, for everyone out there listening that this is, you know, really stuff that only people between the Hudson and East Rivers listen to. I always wonder what's going to happen, kind of as a shareholder democracy activist thing. Dual share structure be damn. What if a billionaire just lobs in an offer and puts out a press release and saying, here, deal with it. I know you're not for sale. I know Salzberger said what he did. But if you have a better plan to get the stock up to 30 or $35, I dare you to try it. It's effectively what Rupert Murdoch did. No one expected. You know, I was at Dow Jones, uh, the parent of the Wall Street Journal back then, and, and, and $60 a share was very rich. That was a price yeah. we hadn't visited since 1999. So I wonder yeah. if everybody has their price, especially in what is suddenly a bull market for online journalism. Well, especially when you get to the fourth and fifth generation, uh, as the New York Times is. And so you have a lot of, you know, cousins, second cousins, third cousins, and their ability to look to the New York Times as a, a source of income is is getting reduced. And, and, and so, you know, they may put pressure on uh, Arthur Salzberger to entertain such an offer if one does come out. But even if one did come out, it would have to be... You know, you could buy the, the New York Times now. Their, their market capitalization is only about $1.2, $1.3 billion, So it would be cheap. But you couldn't get it for that. You would have to pay many multiples over that in order to convince a family to sell. But then once you do that, you would be in the position that Rupert Murdoch found himself in, which, you know, remember, he, he way overpaid for the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, I think he wrote down three out of $5 billion Exactly. So price. once you do that, then you have to figure out a way to monetize that. And, well, a lot of people have $5 not, billion dollars to blow in this environment, Paula. Money yeah, is easy. Yeah, it would have to be a charity. <laughs> it would have to be a charitable thing. It would have to be a trophy for... You know, some wealthy hedge fund manager or something like that. Or but that's about not a, the person the New York Times Jeff, is going to be sold to. You the family know. won't do it. You never know. A Jeff Bezos, for example, again, $250 million versus $2 billion is a different beast. But a Jeff Bezos, if he's not overwhelmingly um, motivated by profits at his moneymaker, Amazon, you have to mm. wonder. He's definitely not going to yeah. care if anything moves the needle at the Washington Post. Well, yeah, but he's he sees the Washington Post as a business, and he's trying to make it more... Uh, you know, efficient and more digital and, you know, more technologically advanced. And I think all of that is going to be very good. And that may be something the New York Times needs. You know, they were pretty much kicked and uh, dragged into the uh, uh, digital era, kicking and screaming. And um, then they're still not that great at it. Um, and so, you know, their, their learning curve has been too steep. Um, they, you know, they just are too hugging too close to the print product because that's where most of their revenue comes from through their, their it, it is the innovator's sales. dilemma it's very yes, hard to let is. that go it's very yes. hard to disrupt yourself now in the yes. minute or so that we have left paula what should be on our listeners radars right now what are you watching um so i'm very interested in this um 
proxy season, you know, which is the season when companies set, send those big, thick envelopes to their shareholders and ask them to vote on things. Um, and then they hold their annual meetings in which, you know, the shareholders generally are expected to rubber stamp whatever the the um, executives and the board have decided. And this proxy season, though, there's there's a bit of an earthquake happening, and that is that, that companies are finally letting shareholders nominate their own directors for the board, and that's called proxy access. So you can nominate somebody, and then the, the, the name of that person goes out on the ballot that the company sends to shareholders. Um, and this has been a long time coming. I mean, it's been in the works for decades. And finally, there are like more than 100 companies are allowing proxy access. Either they will allow a vote on it or they will actually allow it in this proxy season. So, you know, that's a big – that's a sea change in corporate governance. And I think there's – I mean, there are all sorts of other things that are happening. Companies are getting rid of the, the so-called – uh, staggered boards where you only have like a couple of board members up each year and that way you can't have a corporate raider come in and try to overturn an entire board in one swoop. So these are very positive changes and I think um, what I'm so I'm wanting, keeping my eye on is this this big change in shareholder democracy. Paula Dwyer, you are great as recognized by the Pulitzer Prize Committee in 2012 for your work on the uh, European debt crisis. You were a finalist and uh, always near and dear to my heart, that byline and your mellifluous voice. Thank you so much for joining us this week. I had a great time. Thank you, Robin. Full disclosure, we're on Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, WRIR, Wednesdays and Sunday mornings. And you can now access us on PRX and on Twitter and Facebook at Foldy Radio. Our engineer is John Valentine. Thank you so much for joining us. We will be back with you next week. Remember you like a child